that's what, 10 million rand that's for insane. this bottle of wine? I almost want to work it out by sip. Like how <laughs> much does each sip cost? That's certainly anchoring people very, very high. And then our normal bottles of, what are we drinking here? The chocolate block or Rupert and Rothschild, those seem far more affordable. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Follow the Crumbs, a podcast where we will be chatting about all things behavior. I'm sitting here with my co-founder, Lee. Hello. And we are from a company called Breadcrumbs Linguistics, which is a language-based firm very much founded on behavioral economic theory. So why do we make the decisions we make? Today, we are going to be chatting about one of our favorite things, Lee. And that's not just behavioral science, it is wine. (laughs) It is wine. So welcome to the wine edition. The world of wine. So Tegan is busy opening up a bottle of wine because this wouldn't be an authentic discussion. There we go. There's the pop. There we go. Pop, pop. If we didn't do it with a glass of wine in hand. So let's kick this off. Ching, ching. Cheers, everyone. We just find the world of behavior so fascinating, and we're very involved in a lot of client-specific work, industry-specific work, where perhaps there's a bit of an academic lens applied to the behavioral world that we're involved with. And it's just wonderful to be able to locate some of these behavioral things really at the level of us as consumers in our day-to-day lives. And certainly we've seen that in the world of wine, there are so many touch points and nudges from a choice architecture point of view, from a positioning of the wines, descriptions of wines and of wine farms. And we just thought it would be quite interesting to chat today about some of these and maybe give you some insights into the decision making. The why. Understand why we are making this decision over that one. The why of wine. I like it. (laughs) And it might make you just pause a bit the next time you open a menu and go to select your wine for the table. So that's the perfect introduction, actually, because the first thing that we're going to be looking at is the choice architecture involved with the wine list. So picture this. You arrive at a restaurant, you are seated, there are already wine glasses on the table, very strategically placed there, and you are presented, normally one person actually at the table, presented with a wine list if you're with a, a big group of people. And you are asked to select from sometimes a quite overwhelming list of different options. Mm. You've got to make the decision if you're going red, white, rosé, etc. You've then got to decide on the different wine farm potentially that you're interested in. But the first thing that we're rooted in is Price. price. We're looking at the cost of either a glass or a bottle of wine, and that's going to be one of the most compelling things to nudge us into the decision of choosing that wine. And there's a lot that goes into pricing psychology. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us are sometimes shocked at the architecture and the science that goes into price positioning it's and price strategic. psychology. It's certainly Absolutely. strategic. So you sit down, you've got this wine list, and now you're tasked with making this decision. And we have something called the magic of the middle, or as Tegan and I refer to with our clients, the Goldilocks effect. <laughs> and essentially what happens here, and hopefully this is going to resonate with you, you don't go the cheapest, you don't go the most expensive, you anchor at the middle. Not too hot. And not too cold. Not too cold. Exactly. Goldilocks. And that really is where we're most comfortable with making a decision because it just feels like you're not going to one extreme or the other. There's a familiarity and there's a comfort that comes with anchoring with the middle priced option. And and restaurants know this. They They do. They do. They have very cleverly 
designed their menus around this understanding. And so they often put maybe their in-house wine in the middle or the wine where they make the biggest margin or the wine that they're trying to move, any stock that they're trying to move quickly. They usually place it in the middle knowing that it's the most popular choice. So here what's happened is you've anchored on the middle. And this topic of anchoring is a very important one in the behavioral sciences to the extent that price points and price architecture from brands can shape immediately the decisions that we end up making. And we see this anchoring in action towards the festive period, particularly with your big wholesalers like Macro as an example, where they send out their advertising and their broadsheets. And even if you walk into their stores, you are first confronted with the most expensive bottle of wine, sometimes whiskeys. And here you are being anchored at such a high level that you almost think to yourself, no one is going to buy that bottle of wine. That is an insane amount of money to pay. Who's actually buying that? And this is done strategically, right? Because as you move into the store or you look at that email you've been sent, you anchor on that high price. And so everything else subsequent to that looks much more affordable. And that's done to nudge a decision and done to get you to buy and to buy more because now everything seems a bit more affordable, right? So you're not buying that very expensive bottle at the entrance, you're not buying the very expensive bottle in the email, but you do then end up spending potentially more than you would have, uh, having not been anchored on this very high price point. Yeah. And one of those bottles of wine that potentially not macros put at the front of their store, but one of the most expensive bottles of wine that's ever been sold, just a fun fact here, is the Screaming Eagle Cab Sav, a bottle of wine from 1992. And do you know how much that was sold for? don't know. So let me give you the US dollar amount. It was $500,000. So that's what? 10 million rand for this bottle of wine? I almost want to work it out by sip. Like how (laughs) much does each sip cost? So that's certainly anchoring people very, very high. And then our normal bottles of what are we drinking here? The chocolate block or Rupert and Rothschild, those seem far more affordable. So another cool little pricing tip is around how we're rooted very much in metaphorical language. Mm. And so they've done a little bit of research. I think they did it back in 2020 where they looked at the positioning of the price relative to the product and how we perceived that. And they found that if the price is written above the product, it's perceived as being more as opposed to below the product. The prices are the same in this example, but metaphorically we are hardwired to think that up is more and down is less. So even just by placing things differently on a menu or in an email or on a website can change how your consumer is going to respond to it. And how we perceive it. But it's exactly that because up is an increased amount. We're picturing an arrow going up. Exactly. Up is more. And that's ingrained and so ingrained in all of us. So just by placing the price point below, again, when we're talking about sort of broadsheets or some type of marketing material, there really is a a step change in how people perceive it. A big part of what we love at Breakcrumbs is how to tell stories in ways that stories sell instead of storytelling. So a little bit of a play on words there, because when you can capture the hearts and minds of the consumer that you are addressing or your target audience, you're far more likely to compel them and persuade them into taking a course of action. So the storytelling concept is just so critical. It is. And I think it's so prevalent in the wine space because 
wine by its very nature is built on such a rich history, dating back centuries into the process of making wine and barreling it and stomping on the grapes. And so it's got such engaging stories that go along with it. And I mm. think that the best wine brands out there really do leverage the storytelling. We can see it coming through in some of the labels, especially the logos where you see they use a lot of animals or their storytelling about the people or the families that have founded the vineyards or the wine that you're about to sip which, on. Which adds to that credibility because you want it to be steeped in history and tradition and you're going to believe more in the, a wine story where you do see the 1908 bottling and vintages. So we've actually just been to Australia. We did a bit of a behavioral tour and we came across, I mean, their wine isn't as good as ours for our fellow South Africans. That's a definite caveat, although if any of our Australian clients are listening in, then haha, of course not. Jokes, Jokes. like yours. In saying that, though, every time we were presented with a wine list at the various places we went to, and we were Queensland, Sydney, across Melbourne, it was quite interesting to me that the upsell was always a New Zealand-based wine. I mean, was. that was really our experience, that no one was really trying to push the Australian wine, which just seemed crazy Which is me. interesting because they're so focused on locally produced oh, yeah, in, every other, in every other way. So back to the Australian wine brand. So there's one called the Yellowtail. Leon, I'm actually just going to read this to you because I found this as part of their brand story, is that their logo is, you've probably guessed it, a kangaroo. And they chose this because they wanted a whimsical brand that emphasizes the origin and cultural heritage of the product. So the founder wanted it to be approachable and easy to drink. And so he came up with the logo of a colorful kangaroo, which he hoped and which does reflect this free spirited nature of the brand and of the wine. So I think that's a really cool one to show how you can capture the essence of your brand just really in a logo. And we saw kangaroos. We did. Which kangaroos and joeys. Yeah. So that was Very great. cool. So we saw the kangaroo. We didn't drink the kangaroo wine, unfortunately, if we'd known about this prior to our trip. And in fact, next time we're there, we'll look out for this yellowtail. Yellowtail. Yellowtail wine. Perhaps moving from Australia now to Africa and more specifically Southern Africa, we have the reputation of being the wine experts in many ways. And potentially that's why people were trying to upsell us New Zealand wine. Maybe they thought that we were going to be a bit wine snobby, <laughs> but not knowing that our first wine journey was Tussie's before we got to the chocolate block that is on the table in front of us. But looking again at the storytelling rhetoric and how we're able to really shape and mold a brand's personality. And as a result, get people to buy into that brand story and become very brand loyal to purchasing that product and making the decision to buy that wine. And if we look at one of my most favorite explanations of a wine, which is written on the wine label, goes as follows. Crane Constantia State, South Africa, 2017. Africa's greatest wine, Emperor Napoleon, used to have it shipped to St. Helena to ease his exile. On his deathbed, Napoleon refused everything offered to him but a glass of Constantia wine. <laughs> now, if that's not compelling enough to go, and I, that's I a actually great sales did. Pitch. I saw this. In fact, it was um, a behavioral economist who tweeted this a while back. I went and bought that wine just to have this experience <laughs> that Napoleon requested it. It's amazing. And so I think that storytelling element is so powerful because it helps us to really relate to and feel part of another story. And the more connected you feel with a brand or a product, 
the more likely you are to engage with them and lead to loyalty, retention, sales, all the things where we as businesses are out there aiming for. And I think that leads nicely into the next piece of language, which is so prevalent, is hedonic language. There was some research in 2019 by the Better Buying Lab where they found that when you use adjectives that engage our senses and that highlight origins and flavors, you're far more likely to sell that product. And I think their research was looking at plant-based foods. So as a vegetarian myself, I'm very interested in that. So they were looking at how do you market plant-based foods by using gain framing and and a lot of this hedonic language. And also children. I think they were looking at how can they boost veggie intake and with fruit kids. Intake, yeah. exactly. You don't want to eat tomatoes. You want to eat, eat clown, noses. clown noses and not yeah. mushrooms, but gnome trumpets. Exactly. And and as a, as a vegetarian, you don't want to eat something that's meat free, right? Because that feels like it's lacking. You would rather have plant-based or something that's more additive. And this is done nicely with wine. There's a lot of beautiful descriptive words that are used when it comes to the wine we drink. And if you're a white wine drinker out there, you're probably used to words like crisp and refreshing, sweet, elegant, anything that makes you feel like you want to pour a cold glass of white wine on a warm summer's day and just lounge out on the lawn. With ice? With <laughs> That seems to be a thing that the we only South do African in South thing, Africa, but you? yes, definitely yeah. with ice. And your red wines are more, you know, those, they're rich, they're aromatic, they're smoky, full bodied. Full bodied is the first thing. Velvety, but like, yeah, it's yeah. just so cozy, right? You want to just pour a glass and sit in front of a fire. And mm. these words really help to engage your end user and bring them into how it will make them feel. And place of origin for wine is so important. So you will often see the location in the vineyard referenced on the bottle, whether that's Stellenbosch in South Africa or the south coast of Spain. They tend to really highlight that as a selling point sure. of the various wine varieties. And we love things that are foreign. So we're far more compelled, I think, again, to buy into the idea that a Spanish wine or an Italian wine is going to be so much better on good authority. Neither of those are the case. But that origin effect plays out very powerfully even in supermarket environments. And in a piece of research, they compared the sales of French wine and German wine. They changed the music between French accordion music and what's called German Bierkeller music. They saw an almost immediate 80-20% split between when the French music was being played, consumers chose the French wine. When the German music was being played, they chose the German wine. Yeah. Sonic nudges and visual nudges. There's just so much that goes into this world of behavior. I and guess. these are very subliminal ones. And I think that that's also pretty important to recognize as consumers ourselves. Okay. So now we're at the restaurant. We've got the menu open and we've seen some of the pricing with the anchoring. We've read up on the story of the chocolate block and some of its origins, where it's from. We've got some beautiful descriptive language. It's berry flavored. It's oaky. It's rich. It's full bodied. So it has chocolate in its name. So, <laughs> so it's all sounding great. And there's something else that we see on the menu. And that is that this is being recommended to us by the sommelier. Nice pronunciation. Saffron <laughs> must be French. And this roots back to one of our biases known as the messenger effect or the mm. authority bias. And that's where the person who's giving us a message is often just as important as the message 
itself. And so do we know them? Do we trust them? Do we respect them? Because if we do, then we are likely to listen to them. If you're like me and wine choice can be a bit overwhelming, I know I'm a red wine drinker, but beyond that, um, I'm a bit lost. It's really nice to have someone who is an expert in the space who signals this is the to one point to go you in for. the right direction mm-hmm. um, and marble does this brilliantly they actually start their wine menu with the heading al sommelier's selection some great alliteration yeah. there as and well. who's more of an expert exactly and so it doesn't necessarily have to be a sommelier depending on what kind of dining you're going for you can have the top pick of the week you can have a wine pairing where a chef or chef's choice, yeah, the chef's choice, and they've guided you into what the, their recommendation is. The reason I think that that's so important for us is to your point of being a bit overwhelmed when you're faced with any type of decision making. We always say that the choice overload that we are being bombarded with as consumers in today's modern world is very overwhelming. From the moment Absolutely. we're waking up, yeah. we're scrolling social media uh, feeds, we are looking at our emails, we're Thousands of choices on what's so much noise, too many options, right? When it comes to the end of the day, potentially, when we are <laughs> sitting down 5 p.m. somewhere, 5 p.m. somewhere, ordering that glass of wine, and we're presented with just so many choices, there is that fatigue that can kick in. And so we are looking for the path of least resistance. Where can we see some sort of recommendation or where can we be nudged to make an easier decision so that it doesn't become that difficult decision? And it doesn't need to be a sommelier, right? And so we're using these fancy words and and it doesn't need to be an expert, I think, is the point. But you got really good at saying that. (laughs) Because actually my favorite wine at the moment is the Babylon Storen Babel. What a brand Babylon Storen is. They're a case study in and of themselves (laughs) of how to package things, how to market themselves, social media. Yeah, they could be a whole podcast by themselves. So that is my favorite wine. And I actually selected it for the first time on their website because it had been flagged as recommended by their wine club. And that, again, shows credibility through one of our biases called social proof, where we tend to adopt the behaviors of those around us. We like to be part of the majority and where we can signal the majority in our communications and in our brand, we're more likely to persuade someone. And I'm looking at the chocolate block. The stamp of approval. The stamp. Well, it's got the sustainability stamp, the integrity and sustainability stamp certified. So that's an interesting new element, I guess, that's appearing in a lot of the consumer focused worlds is how can you show that you're being eco-conscious? How can you be sustainable? And that's, that's in itself becoming quite a compelling selling point. But yeah, the platters, that platters guide is the one that I... Yeah, that a lot of wines these days, you'll see a little stamp of like an award stamp where it's, I'm a double platinum winner, or I'm a national champion. Mm. I mean, there's so many awards out there. I'm sure every bottle of wine could have something on it at this stage. But those are signal markers to us as consumers who are overwhelmed by choice to say, okay, other people have told me that's a good wine. And so I want to try it and I'm going to buy that one. So it's a reason why I've recently signed up for the Babylon Store and Wine Club. And it's because someone else is making the decision based on the most popular wines, the most delicious wines, sustainable wines. And those are the ones that are then delivered on a quarterly basis. And it really does take the decision making away from me while still allowing me to experience a brand that I've chosen as one of my favorites. So we spoke about sonic nudges earlier. One of the other nudges that I'm just always fascinated by is visual nudges. Visual information is processed 
faster than any other form of information. It's actually called the picture, picture superiority, superiority effect. Yeah. And so sometimes, again, we overlook this element when it comes to communication and marketing. And again, I'm just looking at this wine. You heard me pop the cork earlier. There was a cork. There was a cork. and But that's perception as well. Exactly. Do you choose corked or do you choose a screw top? One is clearly signaled as being more of a premium brand. Yeah, more exclusive. But they've also proven that you don't necessarily need the same type of bottling as they used to, which was why the cork was so popular Absolutely. back in the day. Now it could be the exact same wine, but you would still perceive the cork bottle as being more elite. So what do you think of box wine? <laughs> Box wine takes me back to, to university days, so I'm not sure, but I actually ordered a can of wine the other day, which was really nice. Like a soft drink can. So yeah, you like a Coca-Cola can, wine, a bottle fizzy, of wine. A fizzy wine. It, no, it was a Shannon white wine in a can. So you've okay. got bottle, you've got box, you've got can, you've got corked, you've got screw top. You've even got when it comes to the coloring, like color psychology is also mm. a very... Subliminal and interesting field um, of behavioral, which is becoming more and more studied, more and more researched. It's no longer such a, a pseudoscience, pseudoscience, I guess. Yeah. And even if you look at some of these bottles of wine in front of us, a lot of them have the top wrapping is in a matte finish. And we know that matte is perceived as being more natural and organic and healthier. It improves the perception of taste and therefore it improves sales. Compared to a shiny finish, I think quality streets have also recently moved over from their glossy, shiny, glossy print, they're very yeah. iconic, colorful, shiny wrappers to these matte finishes, paper-based ones, which are also recyclable and, and far more sustainable. So there's a lot that's going into this bottle of wine that's in my hand right now. And just back to that cork psychology is where you have physically opened a bottle of wine and expended a little bit more effort, which technically in the world of behavior, we're trying to reduce as many friction points as possible. So we would argue that your boxed wine, which is a very easy open-close mechanism, can, just the can, the click, or certainly the screw top, those are easier access points. Yet what this research found was that where people felt that they had to expend a little bit more energy or a little bit more effort, the reward of drinking the wine was so much more heightened. What they did is they had people rate the quality of the wine or their perception of the quality and the taste of the wine based on whether they had popped the cork or opened the screw cap. And people found that the cork-based experience augmented the taste and yeah, really it's part of it, right? made and I it guess more flavorful. Wine is so experiential. The world of behavior is such an irrational one. We certainly love it because of the patterns of predictability that that type of irrationality then helps frame. But across demographics, psychographics, age, gender, all those various things that make us so different, we have inherent human characteristics and human behaviors. And it's just fascinating to see that whether you're a German choosing French wine in a supermarket or vice versa, or you are us sitting in an Australian cafe being offered New Zealand wine, there just really are these underlying characteristics and similarities uh, across these geographies. So we hope we have opened your eyes a bit to the world of wine and saved you a bit of money the next time you sit down at the restaurant 
open that wine list. Don't anchor in the middle. Look, I'll challenge you not to anchor in the middle, but I can tell you this. I know this world. We research this. We read this. We live this. Every single time I'm with a group of people and I'm presented with a wine list, it's my automatic go-to to anchor in that Magic middle. Magic of the middle. So I force myself to choose the cheaper wine because technically that's going to be your most valuable wine. But I still feel the social urge to announce to the table why I have done that in very academic terms. So I guess we're challenging anyone listening to this to buy the bottle of wine that is at the lower end of the Don't of the be misled by corks or screw tops, by matte packaging, by labels. So I think our message ends up being in the same way you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, don't judge wine by its bottle. <laughs> Thank you everyone for listening to Follow the Crumbs. Follow the crumbs. Wine edition. Wine edition with Lee and Tegan from Breadcrumbs Linguistics. And Lee, I'm just going to read out some wine puns to As end this we, off. Okay. Really just Tell for me. your entertainment here. Yeah. Hedonic language. Go for Sip, it. savor, repeat. Okay, alliteration. The perfect wine every time. Rhyme is reason. Bit of rhyme is reason. My favorite. It's my great favorite, there. Yeah. We harvest when the grapes tell us to. And my favorite, wines are like people. Some are good, some not. Mic drop. <laughs> it's time to wind down. And I think that's the perfect end to this podcast. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts. <laughs>